Welcome to the discussion, Computer Vision, Expanding Tomorrow's Mission-Critical Capabilities Today, sponsored by Dell Technologies. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Jeff Allstott, Program Manager at IARPA. Chris Algier is the Federal Director at FirstNet. Stephen Dennis is Director of Data Analytics Technology Center at Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate. Michael Knight is the Global Chief Technology Officer, Industry, IoT, and Edge Business Unit at Dell Technologies. And Don Garofalo, Senior Advisor for Programs in the Information Technology Laboratory at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Good to have you all in here today. And why don't we start uh, down at the end, Jeff. Uh, talk about Internet of Things, the larger topic here before we zero in on, on video. But what is the status of agency thinking about Internet of Things and, and wh what's going on there? So Internet of Things uh, is a concept essentially that the batteries are getting smaller, the devices are getting cheaper, the ability to transmit information on a small device is getting easier and easier, and so this is the idea that we're able to essentially bring internet connectivity to many different devices that we wouldn't have uh, thought to earlier, such as your refrigerator or your microwave or your toaster, right? And this of course means that we're able to bring all sorts of smart capabilities to these places that we wouldn't have been able to before. So IoT, or Internet of Things, is a thing that's of interest to the intelligence community because it means there's a lot of data streams going on uh, everywhere, including data that we have to protect against, right? So you know, I work in a secure facility and we have to think a lot about uh, devices running in or out of uh, our offices that, that people now have Fitbits and smartwatches on their arm and we didn't have to protect for that uh, earlier. But you asked about um, computer vision and, and the relevance of, of this. So security cameras and all the cameras that are on our phones are now uh, prolific and uh, recording video that then can be used for law enforcement or, or other purposes. And so at IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Project activity, we're developing algorithms that can be useful for the mission of protecting Americans using that sort of video stream. Okay, and at FirstNet, Chris, I mean, the idea was a communications network, but endemic to that was the idea of many sources of data and not just voice. That's the big leap in, in law enforcement and first responder communications. Right, so, so the FirstNet Authority is looking at and, and having conversations with the public safety community about sort of where they see themselves going. And, and literally, IoT, the things that you bring up are, are the types of sensors and, and information that they're really looking for in order to move into what they call a, a 21st or 22nd century capability, whether that be law enforcement or any of the other disciplines. Uh, so the ability to, to receive uh, sensor data, uh, to increase situational awareness, uh, to assist in investigations uh, is extremely important. And so for, for us to be able to deliver that data to them when needed, as needed, in a prioritized network. That's really what our focus is, is to provide that transport mechanism. In some ways, I guess, first responders, law enforcement, and so on, they could gather data with some of the devices coming out, but they could also, in other words, receive it to help them in the first response situation. Correct. What, what they're finding is that uh, oftentimes they're getting information not from within their own organizations. So it may not necessarily come from within a public safety entity, uh, there may be a scientific or research organization or public utilities or others that are providing essential data that they can use, consume, and actually adjust how they're operating or how they respond to a situation based on that data. I guess to make it even more practical, they could not have seen the source of a fire in a building, say, but on the other hand, maybe a, some surveillance device did see the source. Sure, either in an <coughs> urban or rural setting, uh, those types of capabilities would increase their 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 ability to respond and respond um, as efficiently as possible in days of limited resources. Okay, and uh, Chris, uh, excuse me, Steve at uh, Homeland Security, Science yes. and Technology, you're funding research in a lot of these areas. Mm -hmm. what do you, what's the IOT focus nowadays? Well, I think it's important to realize that the Internet of Things marketplace is about a trillion dollar marketplace, right? So what can the government actually influence is a great question. And uh, as you look at the systems and the data streams that have been mentioned so far, you know, how do we best leverage those? Some of our thinking conceptually uh, has gone towards uh, what we're calling real-time analytics for multi-party, uh, multi-latency metro-scale data sets and networks, uh, where we believe that you're not in the future going to be able to own all the data or have people give you the data, but how do you move the computations, the appropriate computations with privacy 
certainly in security in mind uh, so that you can get the results you need in a timely fashion. You can think about the kinds of decisions that government has to make being complicated by uh, real-time data streams. And so we believe that the analytics systems that are necessary in order to deal with you know, those kinds of situations don't exist and, uh, and that we need to be working towards those. And so in the three to five year horizon, that's, that's what we're trying to do at this point. And you mentioned a new type of data set or a new approach, and it sounded like an acronym in the making. Just yes, think RAMNETs. What, yeah, yeah. what is that again? So real-time analytics mm -hmm. for multi-latency, multi-party metro scale networks. Multi-party, multi-metro. So, so yeah, so let me break it down for you. What about the latency? So, so <laughs> the multi-latency can be attributed to several things. So now you have all these edge devices that are located in different places. And perhaps, you know, in the midst of a disaster response, you have missing networks, you have the inability to, to actually connect. Uh, so it could be determined to be network latency. However, there's also computational latency, right? So how long does it take me to compute the result that I need and move the results to where they need to go? And so latency comes about from, from those perspectives and metro scale being on, you know, smart city scale. Sure, okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so latency can come from, so computational latency is actually a factor in these yes, types absolutely. of situations? However, we're happy with the advances that Jeff was mentioning in terms of like the shrinking size of, uh, and power requirements for processors, you know, the ability to do machine learning on edge devices. You know, these things could all help us, but we need to understand the distributed computational architecture that's going to be needed or could be available and flexibly available for your use. Without waiting for quantum computing. Yes, which could be years away. Could be a long time away, okay. Yeah, could be. And uh, John at NIST, a lot of also research also going on in this whole general area. Yeah, so I, I, I would reiterate what all the speakers have said uh, in terms of the priorities for the future. And b basically what we're developing, uh, especially in the public safety arena, um, as we move into the future, is a, a tapestry of communication networks and compute devices uh, I look at IoT as a lot of computers uh, distributed, and how can we most effectively leverage the computation to perform the kind of analysis that we need on the data, um, and, and all of this data is not independent, so that, that to be able to leverage the dependencies of understanding, say, the relationships of different video cameras to each other, to be able to create a, a full understanding of the scene, not just all the streams that are coming off of these devices. And then to integrate that with information coming off of social media, uh, from uh, audio communications between first responders and 911 communications, um, and also textual communications and sensor data. So we're seeing uh, the emergence of new kinds of sensor data in the public safety domain. Uh, lots of folks have heard about license plate recognition. That's one form. Um, but you could even leverage um, seismic sensors to understand more about what's happening in the environment. So. I think as we see this tapestry grow, it's going to become very rich uh, and it's going to require a lot of complexity and a basis in AI uh, for the technologies that manage both the flow of data and the flow of an analytics across uh, the tapestry. Sure, okay, so yeah, it does sound like a rich tapestry. And uh, Michael, let's turn to you for a moment, having a view across government and the different sure. clients you call on. What are you seeing them, government-wide uh, view, doing in this whole IoT area? Well, everyone's called it out pretty well, but I think John, you know, he's just mentioning about the amount of sensors, right? And effectively finding the signal and the noise, right? As you have sensors that are producing information, one of the biggest challenges you have is when everything's good, it's just producing that same, hey, it's good, over and over again. Well, that can be interesting for patterning, but ultimately you're not really getting value out of that. It's that signal when something changes. So from a Dell technology standpoint, it's really our focus to help the data sets or the sensors be refined locally or as close to that data source as possible, and then be able to learn globally. So there's this concept of federated deep learning, which we can get into uh, in a little bit that I think is particularly powerful and some capabilities that we have, but also how you orchestrate that. Uh, John also mentioned, not just highlighting you, John, but you called out a few good points there, was uh, when you have multiple types of camera streams. When you take multiple types of, of sensor streams, you effectively can gain perspective Right? Because if, if I get different video angles, if I get audio signals, if I get some type of uh, engagement by an individual, I then know what's happening in that scene. And we really kind of break, when we look at computer vision, we look at it in safety and security. 
you look at it in, the, in an operational context, right? Things I can protect the public, things that I can remediate or be proactive on, but then what things can I then drive value out of, right? Can I help gain better insights based on this, this type of uh, sensor perspective that we can help gather? So I would say that the things that we are engaging with the government in many different aspects and many different groups is really how do we refine the data as quickly as possible, allow global learning, but make sure that's secure. We can get into data confidence fabric conversations and things like that too, because multiple parties are interested in that information. We want to be able to surface that in a way that is most advantageous for those parties. And I think that's, that's a real strong step that we're taking with a lot of the entities. And something you said uh, triggered a thought, and that is you mentioned uh, video contains audio. And it's not just imagery. I guess we're used to seeing a lot of examples from drone imagery where you can't hear anything That's right. because you're too far away. But a lot of surveillance video or any type of video does include the sound as an important component. It depends on the jurisdiction. There are mm -hmm. different jurisdictional policies mm -hmm. governing whether or not audio can right. be uh, okay. used with video. But my stand, I just had a more technical uh, question mm -hmm. there too, and we can get into the policy also. But And that is, it's a different type of data, different format of data, audio versus video. And so in IoT situations that include video or any other type of data, you've got the multiplicity of data types to deal mm -hmm. with. Jeff, what's some of the thinking there? The multiplicity of different data types. So we've got the machine learning revolution really started with still images, right? And image classification is, is how we call it. And it's been really fascinating to see the use of techniques that were first developed for images sort of get expanded across many images that we call a video. And a lot of the same techniques are able to be brought to bear there, just run the same algorithm in sequence. But in fact, you do sometimes need to develop new things that work just in video, that were really built with video in mind. I run a program called Diva, in which we have researchers from around the country that are developing such algorithms, and it's been really great. So you were mentioning audio, which is expanding it even further. You really do need to bring different techniques to bear. But uh, as John said, the issues of where exactly do you have what data, particularly from an IoT per perspective, are uh, pretty, pretty critical. In fact, it's primarily phones that have the audio data, and I can actually think of scarcely anywhere else that, that mm -hmm. has audio. It's this interesting dynamic where people actively don't want microphones on a whole bunch of things for very good reason and then we're all carrying around a microphone in our pocket, right, uh, that, that are able to uh, hear what it is we're talking about because they're listening for OK Google or Hey Siri or, or whatnot. And it's the only time those phones listen, right? They never listen other than when you say that. That's one of the funny concepts I think a lot of people have. Sure, and uh, Chris, of course, FirstNet does bring in the idea multiplicity of data sets to sure. that first responder, and uh, I guess the devices aren't quite there yet tot in totality, but you have that data integration question. Right, so, so what, what you have is, is depending on how an incident occurs or how it's set up or how uh, a public safety organization operates on, on a routine or day-to-day -day basis, there's that convergence of multiple sources of information that are coming to a, usually a central location, whether that's a, uh, an operations center within a city or, or an incident commander at a specific incident or an individual officer or, uh, or firefighter or an agent uh, in their vehicle. And so how do they sift through all that and understand all the things and how it directly impacts them? Um, so really being able to sort through and figure out what matters and what doesn't matter. Because again, we did that transition from a, a really a voice-centric world where it was a radio call. You asked for a piece of information, you had a radio call piece of information back, where now that information can be pushed directly to the edge. Um, but Again, that wanders us into the policy questions uh, about how, how you're able to consume that and how do you act or not act upon that, but also about just sort of how do you uh, avoid information overload, how do you make sure that the right information is getting to the right place and who defines what right is, right? So where's sure. the AI that's helping that happen in the future? John? So uh, in this tapestry that we're talking about, um, we could completely overload the end user with information uh, and in a public safety atmosphere where every, literally every second counts, we have to be extremely judicious with how we analyze information, how we integrate it, and how we provide it um, in the most effective formats to the public safety end users, either in operations center or, or, or in the field. Um, and, and so one of the goals uh, that we're trying to, 
to look at is not only how do I extract the, the most uh, important information from all of these streams and integrate them, but how do I provide that in a way that reduces the cognitive load mm -hmm. on the end user? Because that's going to be one of the most incredibly important. Um, if you just send a fire hose of information to the users, they're going to turn the, the, the machine off and not, not going to want to use it. So we've actually created um, a challenge, a prize challenge, uh, in the public safety communications research program um, at NIST uh, called ASAPS, uh, Autom Automated Streams Analytics for Public Safety. And we're actually going to create a challenge in this problem uh, of taking all of these different kinds of heterogeneous streams, uh, creating a simulation of real time, throwing those at the uh, contestants' algorithms, and asking them to not only analyze that data, pr but provide it in usable interface uh, to a simulated end user environment. Uh, yeah, that's really the essential issue, isn't it? Yeah. Is I heard one practitioner say, it's not so much finding a needle in a haystack anymore, it's finding a needle in a gigantic stack of needles. Yes, yes. Because of the volume of data, sure. So this issue that uh, Chris and John have raised about what we call doing processing at the edge, where we have this internet of things with all these devices that have the processing capability and we could be sending all of that information to some centralized source in order to try to parse what's going on and that could be computers or it could be humans that are uh, looking through video or, or so on. But I think that the IOT paradigm is going to be most powerful when we do a lot of that processing at the edge. So as an example that comes up in a public safety context. Just this last weekend, I was in Chicago at the uh, International Association of Chiefs of Police, and I was talking with police officers from around the country and the world there, and I was talking with a guy who is a local police department. There's a school. The school has security cameras, and they're wanting to set up some system so that if there's a shooting or something else, the police will be able to respond in a timely fashion. Problem is, thankfully, shootings don't happen every day. They possibly will happen never at this school, right? And so there's both a technical and a policy question of, do we want to be sending video footage constantly back to the police department every day when nothing's wrong? And can we even technically pull that off? But what we can do instead is we can have some analytical capability at the school or in the cameras at the school running something like a gun detector or an active shooter detector. And so it only goes ding when it sees something that it says, oh, there's a probability greater than 50% that there's a threat here. And then it sends the data to the police department. And so it's those sorts of capabilities that first creates our um, uh, bandwidth management being a, a lot smarter, but also creates our people management being a lot smarter, right? Where we're only bringing in the first responders when they're actually necessary. All right, we'll delve in. The signal and the noise concept, because when you look at the, the you know, sometimes uh, in technology, we like to make things very complex because you know that, that's really cool to do. But oftentimes, it's, it, to your point, it's like if you make it a little bit more simple for them. So as an example, in schools, it's a great, great analogy. You know, and there's very basic commercial off-the-shelf solutions for pedestrian counting. So it's effectively looking at flow of traffic in the school. If that hallway normally moves at three miles per hour, and now it's moving at 14, there's a challenge here, right? And that's really getting back to that predictive and proactive way to do that. So I think that that's a, a great use case, leveraging that. All right, we'll dig into those in more detail, but first we're gonna take a short break. My guests today are Jeff Alstott, Program Manager at IARPA. Chris Algier is the Federal Director at FirstNet. Stephen Dennis is Director of Data Analytics Technology Center at Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate. Michael Knight is the Global Chief Technology Officer, Industry, IoT, and Edge Business Unit at Dell Technologies. And John Garofalo, Senior Advisor for Programs in the Information Technology Laboratory at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin, on the panel discussion, Computer Vision, Expanding Tomorrow's Mission Critical Capabilities Today, sponsored by Dell Technologies here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Computer vision and surveillance, AI, edge, and IoT. These aren't just buzzwords. Using data, Dell Technologies delivers on these emerging trends by deploying new capabilities to protect people, save lives, secure mission-critical objectives, and enhance community services across the federal government. With data, you can get an edge on your digital future. Visit DellTechnologies.com slash surveillance to learn more. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Computer Vision, expanding tomorrow's mission-critical applications today, sponsored by Dell Technologies on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guests today are Jeff Alstott, Program Manager at IARPA, Chris Algier, Federal Director of FirstNet, 
Stephen Dennis is director of the Data Analytics Technology Center at the DHS Science and Technology Directorate. Michael Knight is global CTO for the Industry IoT and Edge Business Unit at Dell Technologies. And John Garofalo, senior advisor for programs in the Information Technology Laboratory at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And let's get to the questions we were getting into before the break. And I want to talk about some of the applications and use cases, some of the specifics where we're seeing this idea of Internet of Things overlaid with digital, uh, mostly video, but also audio types of data streams. And uh, Stephen, why don't we start with you, Homeland yeah, Security. Certainly, and so we have many application areas, and I think we could do an entire segment on the use cases of Homeland Security. But um, I think to focus in, we would talk about emergency response and you know, what does it mean for the future of smart cities and our uh, ability for our emergency responders to come to the scene of an accident or an incident? Um, how do we pre best prepare them? How do we keep them from being distracted? Um, you know, how do we keep them focused on the response so that they arrive ready to go uh, and the entire command structure of the emergency responder? Um, and then also for disaster response, you can think about all of the different parties that have to come together around a disaster, uh, sharing information, understanding where people are, making decisions in short time frames about where to deliver water, um, where to best put up aid centers. Um, those kind of things can be uh, directly affected by this kind of work. Another application area where we've been uh, working together with the uh, infrastructure uh, protection community, so the critical infrastructure folks, 80% uh, of which are in the private sector, uh, all would like to benefit from the uh, security mechanisms brought about by the future of the Internet of Things, the sensors, the video cameras, uh, the technologies. And we have worked with those sectors and uh, especially along the lines of national critical functions that have been defined by CISA uh, at DHS, um, you know, how to best understand what technical uh, solutions are going to meet their needs and how to best manage those. And Chris, I think in the FirstNet context, that's where a lot of that comes together because especially in a major disaster or law enforcement situation, you would have multiple levels of government in many cases responding. Right, and so so making sure that how trying to, uh, actually just back up a little bit and say trying to assist public safety organizations in understanding sort of where broadband takes them, right, and where this information age kind of comes mm -hmm. to. We have a lot of discussions about, well, smart cities, so what does that mean to an urban fire department? And what kind of information can they can they gather in order to better inform and perform? And so whether that's uh, traffic data, right? So they're able to actually move a piece of fire apparatus more rapidly through the city because it understands the traffic conditions and things like that. And and IoT is is a big piece of that as well, where we have you know representatives from FirstNet are involved with the the communities that are developing the building codes on how a building should be able to sort of take on that broadband capability in order to inform firefighters so they don't lose that information once they enter into a structure, where today oftentimes that, that may or may, may happen to them. And so how do you maintain the connectivity? But then again, in, in the use cases that, that we're seeing right now, just in the beginning from a video perspective is taking things like license plate readers, um, just sort of driving along and, and consuming that information, but how some public safety organizations are using that for accountability purposes. Uh, we have a town in North Carolina, lots of tourists going out there during hurricane season. So how do we know how many cars entered out onto the area and how many have evacuated? And so using those license plate scanners to, to really help understand who's out there and to go find those maybe that are lost or haven't been able to get themselves out of a, out of a situation that may become more dire. Yeah, so in other words, our modern infrastructures are really all networks encased in blacktop or concrete. Oftentimes, yeah. So trying to push that out to the edge, again, being able to take that computing with you outside of an urban environment or suburban environment uh, becomes pretty critical as well. We don't always get to choose where things happen. Um, and so how do we make sure that, that the same type of capability and performance that's happening in, in a major urban area can also be transferred into a more rural or remote location uh, just because the incident occurred there. And what about the intelligence community, Jeff? What, what can you tell us about? What are some of the applications and use cases uh, you're looking at? Yeah, so at IARPA, we partner with many different government agencies, and so DHS is, is certainly one of them. So everything that Stephen talked about would, would also be relevant. But we also talk with other groups, such as law enforcement, such as the FBI. 
So we had the Boston Marathon bombing a few years ago, which was a great tragedy, and it was a tragedy on uh, multiple fronts, uh, amongst them being just the technical complexity of trying to rapidly figure out what was going on afterwards and then go find the bad guys and then be able to prosecute. And part of that was uh, all the video footage that existed. There were many different private companies that happened to have security cameras that were pointed at the scene. And so the FBI needed to go get that security camera footage and then parse it very quickly, right? And so for us, the issue is how can you take thousands of hours of video camera footage, which might only span one hour worth of wall clock time, right? And quickly uh, go through it in order to find if there are two people, say, wandering around and then abandon a package somewhere. And that's the sort of capability that we're really hoping to be able to deliver to law enforcement, not just for the real-time alerting paradigm, but also in the fast forensics paradigm, so then you can act. Sure, I heard one FBI agent say that each new generation of technology brings an exponential growth in, in the amount of data they have to deal with on a per-case basis which raises all kinds of questions about bandwidth and storage. And is that what NIST is partly looking at too, John? So I think that's part of it. Um, part of it is being able to understand how to assess the performance of these technologies. Um, so as we, as we move more towards life-critical applications, which are needed in real time, like some of the ones that we've discussed, uh, we need to understand how the user is going to interpret the information coming off of the analytic uh, and be able to effectively understand uh, when the analytic is misperforming, which there is no such thing as a perfect AI system, especially in computer vision. Uh, so training the end users to understand that these data streams is going to be critically important. Um, also, the other thing that I'm extremely excited about, going back to talking about the, the computational tapestry, is that a lot of the equipment manufacturers um, are getting very excited about the ability to bring AI to their devices. And so we see um, camera systems uh, designed for security being enhanced with GPUs and CPUs. So they're actually becoming mobile computers. Uh, and we see lots of excitement in the GPU community, which traditionally focused on the gaming industry, now on AI and distributed AI. So th this tapestry um, that's being created uh, to support the kinds of applications we're talking about in public safety, ranging from being able to analyze large spaces with many different streams, to understand situation awareness, to, to be able to detect emergencies as they're happening, uh, to, be able to, inter to, to be able to interact uh, more effectively with the data and with people and communications. Very exciting opportunities, lots of complexity in how these are being developed, and measurement is, is you know, putting up on my NIST flag. Measurement's incredibly important at all uh, the aspects of these challenges, both in accuracy and in understanding failure. Uh, and bias, so very, sure. very important. Jeff? So on the topic of measurement of these things, so at IARPA we are very serious about testing and evaluation. We often partner with NIST to evaluate the capabilities that we produce. And one of the great things about the artificial intelligence and machine learning paradigm is that it's possible to build testing in just a really um, efficient and smart way that then can communicate to stakeholders what is actually going on. So when you train a machine learning system, you take a whole bunch of data that you train on, and the AI is gonna learn to do that perfectly. So that is uninteresting for in terms of testing. But then you have some other data set that's the test data set that is from the same general distribution as your training data mm -hmm. set, but it's separate. And then that's what you test your AI on, and that is the metric that describes performance. And so what's really nice is that you're able to iterate on AIs and see that test performance go up and up. So at IARPA, we have funded this thing called the Activities and Extended Video Leaderboard, which is actually run by NIST. And this is a active leaderboard that's constantly updating of uh, researchers and private sector individuals that have been submitting their code. And it's running on NIST machines. And the NIST website can say, this is the best in breed for the activity detection in extended video. And that sort of paradigm is able to work across many different areas of machine learning. So this isn't a thing that we necessarily had in the past of this really rapid iteration and communication of test performance. This is gonna be particularly relevant if you're wanting to have a, a new paradigm, including just, it's a new year, how do we uh, see whether or not our algorithms work on a new data set? Well, you just bring in the new data set, plug it on the machines, and then start testing on that. Michael, this seems like a pretty heavy technology load to take on. Absolutely. 
Yeah, so that, I think there's a couple of very specific things that we've worked with, not only different agencies, but even local uh, county governments and cities on, you know, and to the point earlier, there's, you know, there's digital cities, there's smart cities, there's safe cities, right? And those are kind of different ways to approach all of that. But if, as we look at the safety aspect of that, I think the, the one critical thing is we know that things are going to change, right? Our models are going to change. One of the important things, um, John, again, coming back to you, <laughs> again, it just seems like we have such a connection here. Uh, the, uh, we made a comment about uh, hurricanes and tourism and, and those types of things that, that get aligned. Well, the interesting thing is that in a normal tourism season, you might use something like a pedestrian counter because you only have a certain flow of people. Well, if there's some major event happening, you actually have to move to a crowd counting algorithm, which is completely different. Are our cities prepared to do that? Can they pivot that quick, quickly? How do they, can they use a consumption model? So one of the things that we focus on when we're working with uh, cities and agencies is, do you have an architecture that you can quickly update or change the types of models that you need based on the situation so you can get the right information out? Because as I mentioned, if you're using a pedestrian counter on 600 people, it's going to give you completely wrong information, right? So you need to be able to change that. So it's the testing ahead of time. So we have significant uh, surveillance and uh, security safety labs that we have. We also have IoT labs as well as partners such as Intel and NVIDIA that we work with to do performance testing to ensure that their platforms can handle certain things. And then we have to do those algorithm testings on there. And of course, test to fail, because just testing to succeed is pretty easy. Test to fail so you know what, what those mm -hmm. situations are. And then most importantly, have an ongoing, uh, whether that's a managed service or something like that, that ensures that these platforms not only stay healthy, but the model stays up to date. So we have to have the right reinforcement mechanisms for that too. So that's, it's an architecture that can support that at the edge, core, and multi-cloud. And we have uh, make sure that we can enable orchestration as a big part of that, that's key. So it sounds like you need to test for both performance and also impact on mission. I'd just like to follow up and say, uh, you know, when you're implementing systems like this for high-consequence decision-making, um, I think it's really important to have a, a robust set of test data that you're using to extrapolate, you know, the risk of using that technology. Uh, for when you decide to uh, implement that automation, you are incurring a risk, right, that there'll be some condition that you didn't think of before. And so in our testing in the past, we've actually uh, you know, tried out a lot of different situations where all of the parameters change and you want to see how rapidly you can adapt one system uh, to meet new and changing conditions. So I think it's really important thing to understand and there are a lot of policy implications uh, as well as risk communications issues. And also the curation of your test data sites becomes a really important activity. That's right. And this is exactly in line with uh, what, what I want to talk about and that is that um, I, I think a lot of people have talked about data is the currency of the future. Um, and, and the challenge that we have uh, in public safety in cities is, is releasing, making the data available that these cities have already existing for the development and testing of these kinds of complex algorithms. Uh, there's lots of, of challenges in terms of the policies for the use of these data and, and research but also interoperability in the systems right now that are being used in public safety, very complex set of systems that don't uh, talk well with one another. This is a huge challenge uh, that we need to address. But uh, in the end, uh, we'll be most successful if we can create a set of tools so that public safety uh, officials, folks in cities, can develop their own technology, their own uh, computer vision algorithms using their own data uh, and, and understand how to work with that data to curate it to create the models and test them themselves uh, and how to adapt those systems as, as their environment changes. And so I think we'll be moving away from sort of these predefined, fixed uh, kinds of tool packages um, that manufacturers are creating to sets of tools that allow the end users to create their own applications. That's the direction we're moving. Chris? Because I think one of the things you're going to find is, is, and we're seeing it today, is that same sensor, right, is gathering information, but depending upon the mission, and the role of the consumer of that data, that could mean completely different things, yeah. right? So, so deploying a single sensor will actually result in probably a multitude of different actions based upon if it's, you know, is it fire, is it EMS, is it law enforcement? Um, so it's gonna be interesting to see as those things continue to roll on where organizations can come together and say, well, I, I don't need to deploy five or six different things. I, I can actually use one thing, it's just, 
what's on the back end to make it understandable to me and I'm and shareable amongst uh, my peers and within your own organization. All right. On that note, we'll take a break before we come to our third and final segment and a lot more to explore yet. My guests today are Jeff Alstott, the program manager at IARPA. Chris Algier is federal director at FirstNet. Stephen Dennis is director of Data Analytics Technology Center at DHS's Science and Technology Directorate. Michael Might is the global CTO for the Industry, IoT, and Edge Business Unit at Dell Technologies. And John Garofalo, Senior Advisor for Programs in the Information Technology Lab at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This panel discussion is Computer Vision, Expanding Tomorrow's Mission Critical Capabilities Today. Sponsored by Dell Technologies, here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Computer vision and surveillance, AI, edge, and IoT. These aren't just buzzwords. Using data, Dell Technologies delivers on these emerging trends by deploying new capabilities to protect people, save lives, secure mission-critical objectives, and enhance community services across the federal government. With data, you can get an edge on your digital future. Visit DellTechnologies.com slash surveillance to learn more. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Computer Vision, Expanding Tomorrow's Mission Critical Capabilities Today. Sponsored by Dell Technologies here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guests today are Jeff Alstott, a program manager at IARPA. Chris Algier is federal director at FirstNet. Stephen Dennis is director of the Data Analytics Technology Center at DHS's Science and Technology Directorate. Michael Knight is the global CTO for the Industry, IoT, and Edge Business Unit at Dell Technologies. And John Garofalo is Senior Advisor for Programs in the Information Technology Laboratory at NIST. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And let's talk about getting started in this new world of using all of this data, all of this video streaming to get around in front of problems instead of always reacting. And you do need basic foundational architectural and other policy blocks in place. And uh, so, Michael, why don't we start with you with what are some of the ground base needs for, for getting into this new world? Sure, I think oftentimes we, we all start reactively is something occurred, therefore I need to put a sensor there. Now that I have a sensor there, I have to collect the data. Now that I collect the data, I have somewhere to store it. Now I have somewhere to store it, I have to refine it, then I have to get that out somewhere to do that. What's interesting, that's pretty analogous to the oil industry, right? I'm pumping crude and I got to move it to refine it and refine it to production, those types of things. So one of the things that, uh, if you can take an architectural view of that, and you can look that thin edge or that sensor up to your multi-cloud or your, where your analytics may be occurring, and also from that top back down. And I think if you look at what you want to achieve, so we'll talk about it as an outcome, sometimes that word's a little overused, but in this case it's the right use of that. What are you trying to achieve? And if it is, I want to be able to make my city or my environment more safe, then I have to know what, where the sensor points that I need. But in order to do that, how do I need to deploy those? How am I capturing the information? Where do I store that and analyze that? So one of the things that we think is critical there is you certainly have to have edge compute. That's going to be where a lot of that information comes in first. You have to have the right types of sensors and communication back. Refining as quickly as possible, so there's, there's uh, applications and architectures for that, and also to be able to keep the environment not only healthy, but also to continue to orchestrate and deploy new things in the future. And so what, what our perspective is, is a scalable architecture from that thin edge to a multi-cloud strategy that uh, enables customers to make different choices, right? We hope and, uh, and pray that they uh, choose Dell Technologies for a lot of that, but we know that oftentimes that there's different choices they make along the way, but it's our architectures and everything else that's I think is pretty impactful. So if they look at it from a design standpoint, knowing what information they need to collect, how quickly they want to refine that and then be able to produce an outcome from that. That's an important thought process for that. So if you do a mind map, I think that's a good way to start. Yeah, so the idea of uh, fast and getting over the latency that we talked about earlier, the transmission times, that's a really a critical part of that architecture if you are going to be proactive in situations revealed by the IoT, correct? Anybody? Well, I was going to say, so as, as we start looking at where we're going from a technology insertion from a network perspective in the FirstNet network is the applications of mission-critical services, uh, push-to-talk, voice being the, the sort of initial entry, but mission-critical video is, is on its way. And so there are latency requirements that the standard has in play that we, we have to look at and how we implement that in the network. And then how do we start, to your, to your point earlier, about from the sensor or the device up to that computing power and back, 
how long does that take, right? Does it have to exit our network to go someplace else for that to occur and then back? And so how do you, how do you ensure the timeliness of the information operationally, as well as from a standards perspective and safety of life in certain instances where that bit of information just needs to get back where it started from as rapidly as possible? Sean? I, I think we're starting um, sort of from our baseline is, is cloud technology, which sort of transformed the way that we work with large uh, amounts of data at rest um, for non-time critical applications. And now we're adapting that model for real-time life critical applications. And you know, we've talked a lot today about how we're going to have to distribute the processing power. And that really is what we're going to need to do to address these challenges of, of having a specific amount of response times, uh, both in the flow of information and in the analysis of it. Um, so, so I think we're really going to be moving uh, over the next five years uh, into these highly distributed uh, computing and data storage models that are going to look completely different than anything that we have right now. Um, I think it's also going to require the creation of new types of positions uh, and organizations that work with these types of applications that are real-time, life-critical applications. You're going to need someone um, who basically understands how to interpret the information uh, and interact with the system and the users. Um, so you're not going to, at least initially, going to be training every uh, user, every first responder in the analytics. So you need an, an interpreter. Um, and you also need folks who understand the technology side of it. Uh, so they're going to become sort of the pseudo data scientists of the use of this type of technology. And so I think we're going to see new kinds of positions being created uh, to fill in some of the gaps for, this, for these real-time challenges. Yeah, Jeff, what are some thoughts on the human capital side of this? Yeah, so you, as Don was saying, you really do need the two different sorts of, of human experts on this. Uh, you need the people that will be using the, the machine, and there you have to think of man-machine teaming, of how will these people's workflow get modified by the machine, will they trust the machine appropriately, don't trust it too much, don't trust it too little, and so on, and get the most of value out of that. But then you have the people that help build the machines, right? And these two groups of people need to talk, or otherwise they will build the thing wrong. And unfortunately, talent management is always a problem, but in terms of the people building the machines, they're really at a premium right now, but this is just the, uh, you know, the nettle that you have to grasp in order to solve this problem. Yeah, and the other question is, is the machine you build that you're going to team with someone capable of getting coffee for, for the person <laughs> you're teamed with? That would solve a lot of problems. But the other implication I'm hearing in this discussion is that you really need a very specific, not just a strong data strategy, but one specific to this type of application set. Yeah, it was mentioned earlier by, by Michael that the that you sort of refine the data that is in some ways like petroleum. So there's a, a meme going on right now that data is the new oil, which is not correct. Data is valuable, but unlike oil, you can't just get some oil out of the ground and then automatically use it for many different applications. You have to build a refinery around that data well uh, that is built bespoke for that data set, right? And that's the sort of thing that Dell and others are, are really great at doing, but that is a necessary task. And so part of that is making sure that you're getting the right data, you're combining it the right way, that you're making sure that the data really represents your actual use case so that all the tests that you do reflect how it will ultimately get used. And that's the way that you need to be thinking about the whole process in order to get that value. Yeah, I, would, I, would, I would say data is the wool and the loom. Um, <laughs> because instead of, you know, sort of the singular flow, uh, this old process kind of concept of looking at the flow of oil or the flow of data, that it's now completely interrelated and that there's no data that's really independent from other data. And the way that we work with that data is not going to be independent. Uh, so I think kind of like the loom is maybe, <laughs> maybe a better representation. We've got the warp and the wolf going on here, yeah. I guess. Well. Also, with respect to that data, there is the that also leads to the notion of architecture, storage, edge processing, because if, as you mentioned earlier, the cloud is the repository of data, no agency can afford to keep downloading and uploading a petabyte of data every hour when something's going on. So that edge computing and pre-processing seems to come into play also as part of the data and architecture strategy. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think you have to conduct experiments now that tells you, you know, what should your architecture be going forward. And, uh, you know, you have a couple of cloud choices today. Tomorrow you may have more. 
what does it mean to do computation, leaving data in different clouds? So what does a hybrid cloud computation look like that's secure and privacy protecting? And then how does it marry to the edge? And what, what is your computational strategy over that entire architecture? But in order to figure that out, you really need to have your hands on you know, those kinds of architectures and building up the talent base that's necessary in order to carry out this work. Uh, and I think you do need to consider other organizational structures than sort of the typical top-down uh, structure that government likes um, in order to organize ourselves to take advantage of the data. I think, I think we'll also see new types of encoding of data. Yes. Um, so right now we're just take data, we, we use some um, compression algorithm on it um, that's basically focused on taking advantage of the perceptual weaknesses of the end users, um, whereas in the future there may be very little difference between how we compress it and how we represent it mm-hmm. in terms of the analysis of it. Uh, so that we could be pushing extremely lean representations of the data uh, around this very complex pipeline to reduce the, the load on the, on the pipeline and to actually enhance the ability of the uh, AI systems to be able to analyze it. That's the type of data approach almost pioneered many years ago in fingerprint transmission. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's a few data points that you don't need to send the whole file of every little line and exactly. world in there, sure. One comment just about, you know, when you were refining, so use the, you know, the analogy of the, the data lake. If you're going to refine the murky data lake, right, do you try to do that there as fast as possible or do you go upstream to the rivers and streams? Right? Because if you handle it there more quickly, then you're getting a more fine result as it's coming in. Then you can learn more broadly across that. Those are some of the positions that when you look at the architecture, it's you are going to want to have high-performance compute to do some level of things. And that's really kind of your centralized learning where you're taking that in. But if you're bringing in much more refined data that you're already able to use at the edge to make decisions on, mm-hmm. and then as that comes in and then you can learn more broadly, there's also the notion, and because some environments they can't either afford or can't use centralized, right, for geographic mm-hmm. reasons or geopolitical reasons. And that's where there's the notion of that federated edge to where you can allow that federated edge to learn and refine and also build a higher trained globally inference models off of that. I think that's something that can be compelling in these entities. Yeah, because I think, I think what you'll find is, especially in a public safety mm-hmm. environment, that um, how rapidly that you're able to analyze the data and come to a decision point. Mm-hmm. But then what's the level of accuracy of that information, right? So, so sometimes you don't have the luxury of having to be able to reach back and, right. and have that analysis take place. So how do you put that in the edge? And then what's the confidence level? And then what's the right sort of talent pool that's out there, the un- level of understanding of the, of the end user and the more technical folks in the field that are assisting in how they consume and operate and use that information. So again, I'll come back to that, that priority of the information is extremely critical, and then there are layers within that as well. Interesting, because we hear often from the military domain that yes, cloud computing is important, but we have to have edge and local computing because we operate in austere, environments where telecommunications may not exist except for very, you know, locally. But I'm, what I'm sensing is this is also true in, in civilian domains across the government. Well, I think it calls for introspection, too. I think uh, organizations need to understand what their maturity is relative to uh, the ability to collect and curate data, uh, also then to produce analytics on that data, and then for the decision-making piece, you know, how good are they at making decisions? And then looking at the context. You know, if you're shifting context, if you're in the military and you're austere circumstances, you need to be training, you know, improving your maturity level around those uh, scenarios. Yeah, because that drone may download that data or that camera to that data locally, but, you know, the cloud will have to come later. We talked about IoT before and even brought up uh, earthquake and seismological sensors Mm -hmm. and, and sort of the difference between collecting that seismological data for scientific research that somebody's going to go and chew on in a lab somewhere as opposed to seismological data that's being consumed immediately right. uh, in order for responders or industry right, to make mm-hmm. a decision based upon, hey, shake alert, that system yeah. is out there, so how do I gracefully power down a system as opposed to just allow the earthquake to turn it off? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we're seeing that sort of transition where IoT is coming in and the immediacy of being able to have an action occur based upon a piece of data. Interesting. And in the time we have left, we should just go briefly into some of the protections and cybersecurity concerns of this uh, this whole technology set. Yeah, it's a very important point, Tom, because what we're talking about when we talk about automation is either 
taking a human judgment out of the process and saying, okay, we're going to automate that, or relying on a new automation point that we haven't used before. And automated systems are automated. They're going to uh, take their inputs and do their outputs according to whatever their internal algorithm is, and that's it. And unfortunately, that is a thing that is abusable, right? So if you're trying to deal with a hurricane, say, the hurricane is going to do all sorts of things to your sensors that you may not have expected, but it's going to be sort of random, right? And so you can sort of have a statistical guarantee about the functioning of your system. But if you're dealing with an adversary who's a human being that's going to deliberately try to screw up your algorithm, now it doesn't matter if there's just one hole in your whole uh, sort of algorithmic process the adversary is going to go try to find that hole and abuse it, right? And so we really need to be conscious of these sorts of new security issues, where it's not a conventional cybersecurity concern of someone hacking into my machine, but it's an algorithmic security concern, where someone is abusing the automatic process by which we're using uh, our decisions. So that can be ameliorated by good test sets. And uh, at IARPA, we're trying to develop new techniques in order to test algorithms in order to ensure that they're secure. And those sorts of new techniques are going to only be implemented by great people. All right, so great discussion. We have to end on that note. Probably we could go on for hours, but we thank you. I want to thank today's guests. Jeff Alstott is Program Manager at IARPA. Chris Algier is Federal Director at FirstNet. Stephen Dennis is Director of the Data Analytics Technology Center at the DHS Science and Technology Directorate. Michael Knight is the Global CTO for the Industry, IoT, and Edge Business Unit at Dell Technologies. And John Garofalo is Senior Advisor for Programs in the Information Technology Lab at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin, and you're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For more information on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Dell. Thank you for listening to the discussion Computer Vision, expanding tomorrow's mission-critical capabilities today. Sponsored by Dell Technologies on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Computer vision and surveillance, AI, edge, and IoT. These aren't just buzzwords. Using data, Dell Technologies delivers on these emerging trends by deploying new capabilities to protect people, save lives, secure mission-critical objectives, and enhance community services across the federal government. With data, you can get an edge on your digital future. Visit DellTechnologies.com slash surveillance to learn more.